0: So hi everyone, hi again. So we left off last week, last week our class covered, first of all, the overview of the Jewish timeline. Remember that? We started basically going all the way from Abraham and just like covering, reading through up until the destruction of the second temple. Israel became under Roman uh, sovereignty, being part of the Roman Empire, and I laid the context, the setting, in which the second uprising, revolt of the Jews against Rome, will happen. Second and last, the first uprising was the Great Revolt, the one that started in the year sixty-six, and resulted in the destruction. Of the, second. the second one is the one that we're going to discuss at length today I gave you the context last week I want to start off however with pointing out a big difference the first revolt although it had some religious um, components like we want to be free we want to have, we don't have jet of a the Zara controlling the whole Land of Israel it was religious components to it but it was to a great deal a War of nationalism, trying to regain Jewish sovereignty, like they had had before the Romans came, or as I told you, already talked about that last week. They tried to re- re- regain Jewish sovereignty. It should be a Jewish state, a Jewish kingdom in the land of Israel. So that completely blew up in their faces. There's no other word. Because instead of regaining Jewish sovereignty. They only brought upon themselves hell and destruction and losing uh, national places like the Besamikdosh, like the Holy Temple, which they had at least they had religious sovereignty. Now they lost that as well. Plus, they became like completely under cruel Roman uh, control. And then 60 years go by. A lot of things happen in 60 years, okay? the temple was destroyed in 70. The year 70. So 60 years go by, and I gave you the context. There's a new emperor, or a change of couple of emperors. So the emperor that is now is called Hadrian. He is a devout Hellenist. A Hellenist meaning he is a, a strong believer in Greek philosophy and Greek ideals. importance of beauty the importance of paganism, and so on, and so on. powers of nature are the gods. Greek philosophy, right? We, you might be familiar with the work of Ulysses. The whole paganism of Greek, be it uh, all the gods, Neptune and, and, and Zeus, which are all powers of nature. Greek philosophy, contrary to a more ancient paganism, would show the gods in the stars, In the heavens, Greek paganism sees the gods on earth. The ocean has a god, thunder is a god, okay? And so on and so on and actually man could become a god if he knows how to accomplish the 12 works of Hercules and achieve the ascension to the Olympus mountain. The remnant of that philosophy today is the Olympic Games. Mm It's a remnant of, I mean, it's not paganism anymore, but it's a remnant of that philosophy. Meaning, if you can be the best and the brightest at a physical thing, then you're godlike. And if you can master all all like all, all, all challenges, then you go up to Mount Olymp, Olympus and you become a god, which is, if you know the word, pan, uh, uh, um, apotheos. You know that word, apotheos? Isn't it the name of one general? Isn't that the general name? Um, No, I don't think so. No. Apotheos is a Greek word still used today in French to describe a paroxysm, a culmination of perfection, but it's a Greek word that means apo is man, theo is God. Apotheos is man becoming God. So they saw beauty and divine in nature, in the powers of nature, and even in humans, and even in human bodies. And Hellenism, like every belief, you can live it in a simple way, or you can live it in an extreme, almost fanatical way, where everything has to be according to that. Hadrian was a fanatical Hellenist. He wanted the Roman Empire to be exactly faithful, to the true beliefs of Hellenism, building temples for gods all over the place, and thus Hadrian set out throughout his empire to build again to rebuild temples for different gods. He felt that they were not enough temples, and also to make sure that core values of Hellenism should be preserved. It went well, more or less, throughout the Roman Empire until he started messing with the Jews in Judea. It started with him saying, oh, Jerusalem is in ruins, that's such a pity. That's a sore sight for the eyes. We should rebuild this city. It should be a beautiful city. Jews said, hey, this guy, he's a good good guy. But then he went on saying, and we should have on the Temple Mount a huge temple for Jupiter. Jews said, well, a temple? for the for idol worship? And then he said, what are you guys doing? The Judaism is doing circumcision. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's absolutely contrary to principles of beauty as preached in Hellenism. No, I don't want that in my empire. So guys, no more circumcision. And the Jews were like, Haha, grinning in his face, and then behind him like, in your dreams, okay? Like, that's ever going to happen. But he also tackled Shabbat, he says, why why should, man should be productive. What do you mean you become a lazy person once a week? You don't work. Because nature is going to wait around. And that's how he got, and that's what I told you already last week, he got again a a revolt brewing again. It It didn't happen over one year. It took almost a decade, but eventually there was a boiling pot that was ready to explode. And I put it in a provocative way on the board. Uh, The green doesn't come out so well. I called it the Jihadi War of Independence of the Jews. Why did I call it that way? Why is it the Jihadi War? Because first and foremost, it was a holy war. And let's talk about that for a moment. In Judaism, do we have holy wars? I mean, wars that are commanded by religion or for religion? So let's go into that. The conquest of Eretz's Shoal was, but that was initially, okay, that was right in the beginning. Then to defend the land of Israel of enemies, okay, it's a religious commandment. Or to defend other Jews that are being uh, attacked, that's a religious commandment. Now what about if a non-Jew or whoever wants me to go against Torah, wants me to go get religion. So here there are two parts to it. There's the low key and the high key. The low key requirement, the minimum requirement, is that you are willing to do whatever it takes to not abandon Torah, even if it's at the price of your own life. You say, that's low key? Yeah, that's low key. Because it's passive. Meaning, you're not going to it you try to keep Torah to the best of your capacities, if by doing so, God forbid, it should cost you your own life, then you have to do it. Although, some of you might say, but one second, isn't Judaism all about that preserving a life is, is stronger than religious laws, like you don't keep Shabbat if it's to serve a life, you eat on Yom Kippur if it's to save a life, Etc. 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 Don't you like put discard the whole Tyra if it's to save a life? So the answer is yes, with two notable exceptions. One is the exception of three what is called capital mitzvot, which is idol worship, murder, and illicit sexual relationships. Meaning, if, if in one of those three things. To Keep them, it would cost me my life. Well, then I still have to keep them and unfortunately lose my life. This is what it's called in Hebrew yehareg, better be killed, val yavor, and don't transgress. But it's only on three mitzvahs out of 613. So, meaning on 610 mitzvahs, the, the going rule is stay alive. Do what you have to do, stay alive. Right? That's, that's the the direction. Now second exception, I said first exception, first exception were three capital mitzvot, second exception if it's a moment where they try to uproot Jewish religion. If it's an attempt to uproot Jewish religion then you give your life even for the smallest details of a Jewish custom. So a simple example, the Nazis were not out to uproot Jewish religion, they were able to uproot Jews. The Jews saying to a Nazi, but I'm not religious, Nazis, I don't care. (laughs) Besides the point, actually a person could even say to a Nazi, according to Judaism, I'm not even Jewish, the Nazi would still say, I don't care, your father was Jewish. So it has nothing to do with religion, it has to do with survival, it's an all-out war on existence. Then, yes, Torah will say, do whatever it takes to stay alive. As long as it's not one of the three capital uh, offenses, all the rest, like eat non-kosher, travel on Shabbat, do what it takes, stay alive. Communism was out to upward religion. It's very clear. Communism was against religion and that's why Jews Who stayed faithful and did not manage to 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 leave Russia sometimes gave their lives even for things like going to mikvah in the morning for a man, which is a Hasidic Custom not even something you have to do Because you go all the way if it's a if it's a war on religion if religion is the goal of that war, then there is no there's, like, there's no exception. There's no difference in what mitzvah it is, even if it's only a minhag. Person go all the way. But we're still talking low-key, low-key meaning the person is doing their religion, hoping not to get caught, I and mean, still stay smart, try not to get caught. But if it will cost the person's life, so be it. It's called Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. But then there's high key. I know it's not an expression we use, but meaning going all in, not low key, not passive, active. Meaning not only trying to keep religion alive and trying to escape the persecute, the religious persecution. And another example I can give is, of course. Uh, Spain in 15th century with the Maranos, 15th, 16th century with the Inquisition. Where you just try and stay low and survive. But actively let us go and fight those who want to attack religion. See? That's the Jihad. That's active. Mi'yir <laughs> HaShem Whoever is good for God should join me. That was the growly cry of who, who? Mas- the Maccabees, the Matisyao. Yeah, as you said, Matisyao. So that was one Jewish jihad. I'm doing it on purpose to use the word because we are uncomfortable with the word. That's why I'm making, I'm making fun using the word. Because for us, jihad is crazy Muslims, which is true. Because they got it all wrong. But the prince, But the word meaning holy war. When did we fight a war of religion, fighting for religious freedom, two times? First time were the Maccabi Mattisiao, and the Greeks. Like they, their jaws dropped, because never, ever in history, at that time, had a nation ever risen up to fight for religious rights. Didn't happen. Don't give your life for that. The second time is now. 132. When Hadrian is enforcing extreme Hellenism on the Jews of Israel, which is still the main center of Jewish life, and I explained that to you last week, they decide to rally. It will take time. For years, they will prepare weapons, they will prepare escape routes, they will prepare caves. You can still go, and if you have a good tour guide, he can still take you to complete cave systems in the hill of Judea that the fighters of that war used going in from one cave underground system like Warsaw ghetto system but throughout the whole countryside going in and out almost what the Viet Cong did in Vietnam like appearing and disappearing in, in, in the jungle so here we don't have a jungle but still they knew the land they were home the rabbis, and it's important, I, can't, I will not stress this enough. The rabbis, the sages, who in the f- previous rebellion, in the great revolt, had backed out in the middle, true, they were there in the beginning, but they had backed out in the middle. In the middle of the great revolt, the rabbis' position had changed to, let's surrender. Initially, in the great revolt, rabbis were in favor of it, and then it turned out the way it turned out, with also accompanied with a bloody civil war amongst the Jews. So rabbis switched their position from fighting the Romans to surrender and accepting the Roman terms. That was in 6670, the first rebellion. In this rebellion, the rabbis are all in. Because they say, the sages are all in. They say, this is a milchamas Mitzvah. This is a, a milchama. It's a war that you have. It's a mitzvah. It's a commandment to participate in. But it's also a war of independence, because Jews say, if we are ready there, like I told you like, last week, ibqva askva. If anyways you're going for it, go all the way and let's try to have Jewish sovereignty, because it does go together with jihad. Because only through proper Jewish sovereignty will we will we be able to ensure religious freedom. So yes, they, they say let's go already all the way to sovereignty but it's still with the, the, the idea of rebellion. Now you know, a rebellion always needs a leader. Rabbis, sages were the spirit of it. The leading rabbis amongst them was a famous rabbi called Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. He was close to he was he was actually more than 110 years old, but he was the the authority, literally the authority. He was the big he was the like he was the Rebbe. He was the Godol the Giant of the Generation. He was the torchbearer of Judaism. And here came along a Jewish. Let's call him General, because Jews were like, preparing themselves for the battle. So a Jewish platoon leader, captain, general, terms don't matter because anyways, the titles didn't exist. His name was Shimon. He came from a small town called Kosiba, with an S. Uh, there's actually a discussion if Kosiba, there are two parts, is Kosiba a town? to the south of Jerusalem, a little bit like between Jerusalem and Hebron, or is Kosiba a town on the shore, like close to Akko? It doesn't matter. But he's known as Shimon bar Kosiba, son of Kosiba, but in those times when you said son, it doesn't necessarily mean filiation, it can also mean geographical origin of Kosiba. He's charismatic, he's very strong. Strong, he's filthy, very strong, he's big. And he rallies troops around him. He is the, I don't know how much you know, Second World history. But England, like, who's, no, no one's from England here. Ah, here Oh, you are. Oh, yeah, Sabrina, right. So, Sabrina will more understand what I'm referring to. But he was even more than that. I was going to say a Churchill. A person who inspires and leads in times of war. Even if you seem to be on the losing end of things because you're like, you're an island in the sea of Nazi kingdom. Like, what, you, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, the Romans got to England as well I mean, eventually he only takes boats uh, I mean imagine the other way around, okay, England and America and the Allies eventually from the island took back the mainland so if you can work it that way imagine how much more you could have worked the other way around so think about it for a moment, right, if from one island you can take over a mainland so can the mainland take over one island eh, sure you can there was a the beginning of the battle of England etc. Eventually, the Nazis gave up, but let's not go all oh, World War II. But bef- when it barely even started, there was a person who stood up and spoke the truth, said there will be blood, there will be tears, but we will never give up. We will, we will go to the victory. And he rallied people around him. Now, he, he, he goes even further. He's not only a talker, he is also a military man on... Um, meaning on sight, carrying arms. And thus starts ba- Rabbi Akiva, re- the, the godol Hador, the giant of the generation, renames him. Instead of being called Bar Kosiba, the one who, who comes from Kursiba Kosiba, Shimon, his name is, Bar-Ko-eh, Rabbi Akiva surnames and gives them a new name, a nickname, Bar The son of the star, Kochav. In a way, also alluding to the verse that there is in Babidbar that says, in, verse in, the Torah, in, uh, in the book of Numbers, that says, one day will come where a star will shoot out of Jacob. And it talks about about the ushering into the messianic age. And Rabbi Akiva says that's him. That's the Shimon. And thus, in the year 132, under the l- military leadership of Shimon bar Kochva (now named Bar Kochva), the Jews set out in their holy war of independence, and they are successful. They managed to chase the, Jew- the Roman legions out of Jerusalem. They actually managed eventually to chase the Romans out of the whole land of Israel. There's no Romans left. Almost two Roman legions were kicked to the curb. Of course, a great deal of them dying in battle. They got rid of the Romans! V-day, right? Literally, Victory Day. Shimon Bar Kochva establishes his siege, his, 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 his seat, yeah, it's not siege, his it's, 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 it's seat is like court in Jerusalem. He takes away runes from the base of builds a Jewish altar and Karbanis are started again it's a very lone fact little known fact a beginning of service of the temple is reinstored completely valid according to halacha and this is by the way most people are under the depression that the last time there was some kind of divine service on the temple mount was in the year 69 or early 70, right? Just before the destruction of the temple. Yeah, but not really. There was, again, not for one day or one month, for a long time. You know what's one of the most chilling things that archaeologists found? It's when they, one day, somewhere, in caves or in other excavation places, came came upon Coins. So they unearthed them and they started reading it. And then they read Shimon Nasi Israel. And, and on the other side it says, Yehuda, Freedom of Judea, Shana Aleph, Year One. And then they found coins where it said, also similar, Shimon Nasi Israel. Yehuda, Shana base, year two. Meaning there was a beginning of a state. They minted coins. It means it enormously in history. If you have a society that is minting coins, it means that there is already some kind of economy that is up and working. They got to work, got rid of the Romans, they got to work. And that's why Rabbi Kiva did not hesitate to go openly public proclaiming, saying that Shimon Bar was Melech HaMashiach, was the King Messiah himself. And most rabbis agreed with him. I say most, because there were some rabbis who disagreed. Although they did not have an actual argument supporting their disagreement, they just said, "Uh uh-uh, there was a rabbi, remind me his name, yeah. Rabbi Yochanan Ben Tarta, less known rabbi, who says to Rabbi Akiva, he says, grass will grow on your cheeks before Moshiach will be here. I mean, yeah, that's a very <clears throat> interesting way of saying you will be dead and buried by then. Meaning, you're saying this is Moshe, so, this is not Moshe. It's interesting because they, besides that they disagree, they don't, like, why, based on why, why are you disagreeing? I mean, maybe this is Moshe, saying, so, uh uh, this is not Moshe. Yeah. So, Bar- <laughs> Bar- that mm. don't know. Let's assume. Interesting question. Yes? When they, did they study "Oh, OEI like your alphabet? Did he agree with it? It could be. We don't find places. We don't find places that he didn't agree. Listen, the thing is, you see, in history, two years is, is barely a hiccup. No, li- li- really. Two years is barely a hiccup. Again, like, like barely a, a something. Why? Because they won. Yeah, put brackets on that. Because true, they did kick the Romans out of, of Israel. True, they established Jewish sovereignty. Yes, they minted coins. Yes, they restarted temple service, although in a very restricted form because the temple was actually not standing. But you can still bring a korbanot, sacrifice, even without the whole temple standing. Just need to be a mizbeach on harabais. But Hadrian didn't let this light no one rebelled against rome we're not talking rome third century where it's starting to disintegrate where the english already said to the romans have a good swim uh, and so on and so on okay where we're slowly slowly like collapsing that's the third century this is the beginning of the century this is paxis romanus if you know that term which is roman peace Throughout the world. The whole world is Rome. Rome goes from 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 northern England all the way to, to, to Pakistan. Seriously. The whole world is Rome. What is this, what is this crazy saying a bunch of Jews kicked Rome's out? <laughs> oh no, you didn't. And Hadrian, knowing that the previous Jewish rebellion was a difficult one it lasted for five years from the year 66 till the year of seven years till the year 73 seven years which is a crazy amount of time for such a small place and it costed a lot of roman life hadrian sent in hold tight hold tight hadrian sent in 12 roman legions now you say why are you holding tight the whole of the Roman Empire had 24 legions. The whole of the Roman Empire is 24 legions. He sent 12 legions in. Basically, half of the Roman might he sent in on Judea. It's going to be its tsunami of firepower, if you want to say, of forces. He's not taking any chances. He's bringing his best general, maybe Sabrina's going to be flattered once again, his best general is Julius Severus. Julius Severus is the one that was fighting with the wildlings. I know you're thinking that I'm referring to a certain t- series or whatever, which I did not see, but, I, but it's the actual historical fact. There were wildlings in the north of England, and eventually the Romans built a wall. Okay, it, this is historical, history. Romans built the wall because they said, you know what, let them just stay over there, whatever. And and be with their sheep, and we'll just have over here. But So the big, it it was a big Roman general called Julius Severus. He was holding holding England, which was Northern Europe. And he was called in. He was called in to lead the 12, 12 legions, half of the Roman army. Imagine today America sending somewhere 50 percent of their armed forces like <laughs> where china no seriously like 50 percent of the armed forces <laughs> where i like, just know that any war of iraq was not even a fifth you know what you know, what, you know how much you're talking about you are crazy that what the romans did that and it's going to be unfortunately a slaughter. No coins of Shimon, Nozi Israel, Shana Shalosh, Shimon, Prince of Israel, year three, were ever found. There's no year three. And although the Romans arrived with such power, they still took their time. This will take three years. Now, two years. The Romans will come back at the end of 134. 132, 133, they're not here. They got kicked out. They got taken by surprise. It doesn't count. And then they come back in 134. They could have had it over in a couple of months. But Julius Severus wants to have as minimum as Roman life loss. Not because they were such humanitarians, because he doesn't want to. So, he's not going to go into open battle with the Jews. Dio Cassius is going. Dio Cassius is a Roman hist- historian. There's a Roman historian. He lived in the second century. He lived in that period of time. His books, you can look them up, even they're online. You can even have them online in their original language, which is Latin, but then you might not know what the heck they're saying. So, they're online also with their translation. So, let me read to you what Dio Cassius writes. Severus did not venture to attack his opponents in the open at any one point in view of their numbers and their desperation. Okay, this is a Roman historian, historian, so he has to belittle the enemy as much as he can. What he calls desperation is what I described to you last week as religious fanaticism, a kamikaze attitude of crazy eyes where we don't care that we're dying, most difficult people to fight against. People who have craziness in their eyes and don't mind dying. They're like going on suicide. Kamikaze, it's very difficult. So Severus did not want to go head on, but by intercepting small groups. Thanks to the number of soldiers and his officers, yeah, you have half of the Roman army with you, and by depriving, depriving them of food, and shutting them up. You understand his strategy? He's choking them up. He doesn't confront them in a noble battle. You need provisions. So he like, blocks the roads. There's no big formation of troops against troops, but he makes sure that he is eventually choking them up, one by one. He was able, rather slowly to be sure, but with comparatively little danger, to crush, exhaust, and exterminate them. Very few of them, in fact, survive. Fifty of their most important art posts and 985 of their most famous villages were razed to the ground. Important thing: Romans don't make a difference between soldiers and civilians. Then any place of Jewish habitation gets leveled to the ground. They don't make a difference. So it's it's a it's a slaughter. 580,000 men were slain in various raids and battles. Some historians think that this is a little bit exaggerated, but maybe. And the number of those who perished by famine, disease, and fire, was past finding out. Thus, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate, a result of which the people had had forewarning before the war. For the tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regarded as an object of veneration, fell to pieces of itself and collapsed. We have no idea where that is. The Acacias talks about a big Jewish shrine, which is the tomb of Solomon, that was completely destroyed. Well, it was so well destroyed that up until today, we have no idea where the tomb of Solomon is. They never even found any... And many wolves and hyenas rushed howling into the cities. Many Romans, however, perished in this war. With everything. Like I said, the crazy Jews. Therefore, Hadrian, in writing to the Senate, did not employ the opening phrase commonly affected by emperors, if you and your children are in hells, it is well, and I and my legions are in health. He's saying, Hadrian, when he reported to Senate that he had crushed the war, did not use the opening sentence since he couldn't use it. Since with, although he took his time and he took his precautions, it still also was bloody for the Romans. Jews did not just shit it out. It ended all in the year 135. Whatever was remaining of the Jews and of the fighters retreated to a city which was quite fortified to the southwest of Jerusalem. The city was called Beitar. Today there's a Jewish city that is called Beitar Elite. Two names, which means the heights of Beitar, because actually it's on the hilltop that, it's n- that is overseeing where the biblical, I mean, initial Beitar was. But that's where the last, like, like the Alamo, that was, that's where the last battle was. Kind of their Masada, if you know the story of Masada, with, in the forest rebellion. difference is they did not commit suicide. They fought it out. They fought it out and lost. Now you say that's a sad story but the story doesn't stop here because the Romans did not stop with we won the war. No, that was step one. Step one, crush the rebellion and reassertain sovereignty. Step two, the spirit behind the rebellion. What was the spirit behind the rebellion? Religion, right? So go all out. A war against religion. And here the Jews are going to maintain religion in secrecy. But the rabbis won't be able to be as secretive about it. Because they are rabbis. So they will be seen. Romans will prohibit teaching Torah. Rabbis will always teach Torah. Prohibit circumcision, we said, but even more. And rabbis will continue to do that. And it is in that period of time, in the couple of years that will follow, 135, 36, 37, the beginning of 38, three years, that it will be the, one of the most brutal religious persecution with the biggest, one of the most biggest religious price. If you know of the, 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 this passage, liturgical passage in the prayer book of Yom Kippur, you might know of a passage that is called the Ten Martyrs. Asurei Harugei Malchut. The Ten Holy Martyrs. That passage describes, sometimes in gruesome details, how ten of the biggest, the brightest sages were killed publicly, in most cases, by the Romans. When did this happen? A lot of people don't realize when, when, when was this? This is here. A lot of people don't also know. They all say, oh, like Boomer. Bar, uh, Bar Yochai, because Bar Yochai, uh, yeah, and then he said, tell me a story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, another Jewish sage. A lot of people know the story. Shimon Bar Yochai lived in a cave for 12 years. Uh huh. Why? Because he spoke against the Romans. <laughs> what is this, Stalin? No, worse. No, seriously, worse. When did this happen? Same aftermath. People don't make the connection. And thus, Rabbi Akiva, the the sage, as he was 120 years old, was caught publicly teaching Torah and was flayed. his skin being ripped off from him with iron combs. And he died screaming the Shema and Rabbi Ishmael and Elisha and, and, and you name it. Sages after sages. It was one of the most dark time of Jewish history and it gave a tremendous push to diaspora. Why? because it was not possible to live in the land of Israel anymore. I discussed it last week with you already, that there was already diaspora, but Israel was still like the center. Like, that's like And the rest were like, I mean, not cop-outs, but yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit of cop-outs. Yeah. You're not, you you're not, you're not Hasidish. <laughs> you're not living in the real place where it's all happening. But after this war, and with the religious persecution, and rabbis being killed, Sages being killed, a lot of Jews fled, those who left. By the way, the Romans crushed the spirit religiously and also nationally. They forbade Jews to ever enter the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the first Judenrein, clean of Jews, city in the world. Forbidden for a Jew to enter the city of Jerusalem, whatever was left of it. 200 years later, they will lift that ban but only for one day. Only one day a year Jews were allowed back in the city of Jerusalem, on what is the Hebrew day of the ninth of this month of Av, to like, like, like really like, rub it into them. Everything was destroyed, you lost, don't ever dream of trying again. And, and Jews will not for 1,800 years until 1948. This was the last war of independence that was fought until 1948. 1,800 years will pass, 1,813 years will pass. By the way, talking about the 9th of Av, the 9th of Av, in a cruel, predestined date is the date that the city of Beitar will finally fall. The last fighting place of Bar Kochla and his soldiers. Bar Kochla, by the way, did not make it all the way till the end. He, he died in Beitar during one of the many uh, assaults against the city. In one of the assaults he was killed, but his man still uh, fought it out. I have to share with you an interesting theory. And I cannot stress the word theory enough, because it's just a theory. Did I say theory enough times? Good. But there is an interesting theory. Rabbi Akiva was the biggest sage of the time. And his opinion was an all out war against the Romans. And it ended in complete slaughter. Huh. How did Rebbe Akiva lose all his students? Following the theory? Mm -hmm. Is the Talmud talking in a enigmatic way, which will not be the first time, when he talks about a disease that killed the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Because it wouldn't make sense that the disciples of Rabbi Akiva would have been at the forefront of what their leader, their Rebbe, said to be a holy war and mitzvah. That's right. right, But, or, 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 no, that happened early on in his life, And this is something else, or is it? There is one, I think Yalkut Shimoni, that has a kind of a tricky wording, that talks about the pulmus. But you see, instead of talking mageifo, the Babylonian Talmud talks, talks about an epidemic. And there is another rabbinical teaching that talks about pulmus. Now what's is interesting is that Pulmos might refer to an epidemic but can also talk about a war. They said that they all died in the Pulmos. Interesting theory. And here I come to the other point which not be history it will be more like Jewish thought. Did what were the conc- what were the religious conclusion from the debacle? Because here I want to ask a religious question. A theological question. Why did they lose? Why did they lose? They, what did they do wrong? Those were all religious people. Well, I have to read to you a testimony from one of the archaeologists that for the, was one of the first to have uh, um, like testimony of the, of, of the, uh, oh, of the Bar uprising. By the way, you should know, I'm giving you today a class about Bar uprising that is a class that is compiled out of discoveries that were mainly made in the last decades. For a very long time, people did not know most of the facts because the facts were all over the place and some of them were hidden. I want to read to you, um, a testimony of Yigal Yadin. Yigal Yadin was an archaeologist, an Israeli archaeologist. So he says, we were digging in the desert of Judea in the caves over there when one of the people working for me brings me a very old bag. I open the bag and in the bag there are papyruses attached together with papyrus threads. It's very old, like the paper from once upon a time. I started trembling. Very patiently, I started opening those documents up with the help of specialized technicians. And then I started reading them with the help of plates. And I'm reading a letter, someone asking that they should be that etrogim and lulavim should be brought to them. And when I get to the end of the letter, and it's written in ancient Hebrew, not Aleph Bet that we today use, a little bit different, I I started shaking from all my body when I saw the person signing the letter. Shimon Bar Nasi Israel. He was holding in his hands a letter that Shimon Bar Koziba, Bar Kochla, had sent to someone asking for supplies of Esrik Elulof. You imagine being an archaeologist in 1960 and holding in your hands a, 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 a letter that dates from 1,500 years ago that sheds light on a period of time that is that is little known. By the way. Dead Sea Scrolls, Bar Kokhba letters, they were it's, it's a feature of it's a feature of, of archaeology. The unique um, levels of sodium in the air. And the dry air of the Judea Desert produced extraordinary for things to be preserved. It was like a natural server preservation. That's why things of... He he could like open up a letter of 1,500 years. If you today take a piece of paper and you write with your pen and it says 1,500 years, no one is going to find the piece of paper. It's it's not going to be a piece of paper. The piece of paper is going to disintegrate. Not in 1,000 years, not in 500 years. way before that. It's going to fall in, become dust. So, I'm asking you the question and you give me answers. Those were religious people. They fought a good cause. They were animated by the most nobles of, 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 of uh, considerations. Why did they lose? And my, my question is, spiritually, don't answer to me because it won't For Hashem, that's not a that's not a criteria. See the Maccabean rebellion, right? Why did they lose? Anyone want to venture? Okay, go ahead, anyone? Or, or you know what, question my question, if you don't like my question. I, mean, I feel like it's an oversimplification to be like, well, because Hashem wanted it to be. It's in the plan we were kind of capable insights into it, but they would have lost if Hashem didn't want them to lose, if there was some reason they could say. True, but what, which what, I, I like first, but it doesn't lead to make a follow-up question, and why didn't Hashem want them to win? So could say, well, will Hashem want so not. Well, I think when you look at it, the following 1,500 years, it's like obviously there's some very tragedy and so many horrible things, but you also look at all of the good that Jews in the Diaspora were able to do, and the things that they were able to bring into the world, and the societies that they were able to influence in okay. all these really meaningful ways, and it's like, if that had never happened... I like your answer. You're saying there's a divine plan, and okay, fine, you did everything right there was a greater cause. And even if it for you it meant losing instruments, the greater cause. Okay, thank you. Yes, Maybe at some point a bit less. Well, it, it's interesting. There is a... a in the Babylonian Talmud, in Babylonian Talmud, just at, that Bar Kokhba himself, that Bar the himself became, like, not worthy anymore. The story might have killed someone else that he suspected that was collaborating with the Romans and other sage. What is interesting is... That uh, uh, Maimonides writes the following about this, uh, this period. And then you say, why, where? Maimonides doesn't write history books. He wrote halacha books. But in halacha, there is the laws of. of uh, no, not in the laws. Of, oh, actually, he does bring him also the laws of Mashiach, but I was referring to the laws of fast. In the laws of fast, he talks about the fast of Teshaba of. He says, Why do we fast on Tisha So he says, first temple, second temple, and then he tells the following story. And there was also a great city named Betar that fell on this day. There were there tens of thousands of Jews. They had a big king. All among them the greatest sages believed that he was the king. Moshiach. He, however, fell to the man to the, in the hands of our enemies, and everybody was massacred. It was a disaster equal to the destruction of the temple. So there's no, here in that description, there's no, like, saying, yeah, like, like, like halfway. Yeah, maybe not. No, he's like, going all in. It was a great city. There was a great king. Everybody, like, he's completely oblivious to the Gemara saying, well, there was somebody. Yeah, yeah, we don't care about that someone. Everybody said he was Mashiach. Interesting, because the Gemara only says that Rabbi Akiva said that he's Mashiach, and that it was this other rabbi, Rabbi Yochan ben Tartar, who contradicted him. And my mind is when he tells the story, he says, everybody, including the biggest Chachamim, said that he was Mashiach, And it fell in the hands of our enemies, so he puts the word enemy. He doesn't say, he could have said the words, and they were not worthy, or something like this. He, didn't, he could have put like some kind of hint to, and, but they sinned, you know. Oh, but they forgot God or whatever no he's showing it like Choban Bet Amikdash so I, I, Juliana I, I hear your answer I'm going to I'm going to go about it a little bit differently and maybe also explaining why the theory that the 24,000 pupils of Rabbi Akiva that although the Talmud in, 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 in the Babylonian Talmud explicitly said that they died from an epidemic better they died of an epidemic what do you want? don't talk about a war. Maybe there's a reason why that theory can still hold, although it seems to contradict. It could be that the the Babylon Talmud is talking in an enigmatic way intentionally. I don't want to give a Hasidus class now, but theoretically, the way things should work is that the physical realm of things, since it's being powered by the spiritual world, they should be synchronized, meaning that when things are more connected to the spiritual, they should thrive, and when things are less connected to the spiritual, they should eventually die out or or come down. And that is true as long as Divine Presence, Shekhinah, is revealed in the world. And Shekhinah, Divine Presence, was revealed in the world since God gave the Torah all the way to destruction of the Second Temple. Because, you see, as long as there was the First Temple, okay, you had it. Even when the First Temple was gone, you had prophets, and prophecy is a revelation of the Divine Presence in the world. And even when there were no prophets, there was again the Second Temple. As long as there is Divine Presence in the world, the physical realm and the spiritual realm are synchronized. Not necessarily in in instantaneous manner, like a person eats something on Yom Kippur, boom, heart attack, on the spot. No, not per se like that, but still. Karet, meaning the source of his life gets cut off. It could be that it's like a car that is driving, the motor, the engine shuts down. Oh yeah, sure, he can still maybe drive for another couple of miles, because his car is already, but he won't be able to go uphill, and definitely won't be able to go very far, because the engine is dead. So it doesn't happen on the spot, but it will happen pretty, pretty quickly. But then comes a moment in Golus, where spiritual, where divine present conceals itself. And that, and if you want to develop that idea, take in the third section of Tanya, the portion called the letter, the epistle of Tshuva, Egerist Tshuva, fifth chapter and on. Now you say, oh, he talks about about Bar Kokhba there? No, he doesn't. But he talks about what I'm describing now. How come that what Torah says about rewards and punishment doesn't check out it doesn't work which is a question a lot of people have uh, not in history, in their day to day life it doesn't seem it's working and he answers because in time of what is called exile, divine exile the spiritual realm and the physical realm are not synchronized synchronized eventually all all roads lead to Rome so to speak they will line up, but you won't understand how it works. So things don't act and react with a corresponding manner. Meaning there is what happens in the spiritual world, you do mitzvot, you do Torah, good for you. And there are things that happen in the physical world that obey the laws of physics. And there is no direct interaction in war, even though it eventually lines up. But eventually you won't see it not in a manner that you can make the link. And here I want to tell you a story, one of the most famous stories, which I am convinced, and I, I, I didn't see it in all of these, I did see it in one place. Uh, I, I believe very much in that interpretation of that story, of one of the most dramatic stories in, Ju- in, in, in Judaism as a religion, which is the story of an immense sage Deciding to leave religion. His name was none other than Elisha ben Avuya. He was one of the pupils of Rabbi Akiva. (laughs) One second, one second, one second. Elisha ben Avuya dropped out of religion, went off the derech. Stop being religious. Thomas tells us a story why did he become not religious and the story goes like this one day he was on a road and he saw a father telling his son please go and take the 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 eggs that are over there in the nest i can see a bird's nest up the tree most probably must be eggs in it so the son went up the tree there was the mother bird sitting on the nest he chased away the mother bird thus doing the mitzvah of the Torah sending away the, the, the mother bird and he took the eggs as he was about to go down, he tripped fell, broke his neck and died says the Talmud when Elisha ben Avuya saw that someone who had just accomplished the two mitzvahs for which the Torah promised longe- longevity true, there are only two mitzvahs in Torah that are promised longevity one is honoring your parents the other one is the sending away of the birth he said, how can it be he just did both together he did something for his father and, and while doing so he died I don't believe anymore and he dropped out nah? Always in my mind, I was not comfortable with that story. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. Because it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense that someone is religious. Or even more so, a rabbi. And even more so, a big sage. And because some one thing happens in his life which he can't understand, he drops out. No! He's not 16 I mean, come on! So you don't understand everything that happens. <laughs> I grow up, I'm sorry, with all the, the kavod, you know. Okay, so I, so I didn't, like, no, it, 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 I, I never could wrap my head around this story. Something was just not making sense. He's, that. this is oh, this is it. not religious anymore. What, so is baby? And then I once read an explanation that put my mind at ease. Alisha ben Avoya saw in the most blatant manner, not the child, he never saw that child. This is an allegory, it's a metaphor. What did he see? He saw Yidna fighting for Tyra Kedosh Hashem, And not only didn't they win, it brought a massacre of unheard proportions. The massacre of the Bar Kokhva uprising is way worse than the massacre of the destruction of the temple. He saw his Rebbe being stripped of his skin. He saw Gdoilin being burned. And he came to the realization that Torah was not connected to the physical reality anymore. He's not saying Torah is not true. He's saying Torah doesn't matter. You hear what he's saying? It's irrelevant. It's disconnected. Someone took out the the plug. It doesn't matter anymore. So if it doesn't matter, oh, so if it doesn't matter, it doesn't it? See. Now he stayed did he still believe in Hashem? Yes. Did he still believe in Torah? Yes. He taught Torah to his own student, Rabbi Meir, even if he, after he stopped being religious, he just did not believe that it made a difference anymore. A kind of religious depression. It's not worse than just. Huh? I feel like it's kind of worse than just not believing it at all. It's sad. It's more painful. Than it. It's more painful, hundred percent. It's hundred percent more painful. It's big pain. And, and so that expression that I read is that rabbis did not want to expand on that. Maybe I shouldn't either. Good point. And expand of that crisis of faith that he had. How, how can he be? So they gave a metaphorical image the person went and took and, and he did all the mitzvahs and Tyra promised him and it didn't happen. Of course it didn't happen in one day. Does, you don't collapse. Your whole system of faith doesn't collapse in one day. It rarely does. This is not one day. Was Elisha ben Avuy alive? Yeah, of course he was alive. The generation of Elisha ben Avuy is the generation of Bach Kochva. Where was he when his Rebbe screamed out, Hashem Echad." That's probably right next to him. Understand? How can it be? How can it be? How how can Goyim kill the Tzaddik Yesoy Doilam? It's not possible. A guy can't kill a Tzaddik. A Tzaddik, the whole world lives on his energy. It's not possible. You, can you understand a crisis of faith that could come to a person? Sure, it can come to a person. It's not possible. But that was the reality. The Alta Rebbe explains that, yes, in the times of Galut, in the times of exile, spirit, spirituality and physical reality are not synchronized. They don't interact in a logical way of causality. Cause to effect. You do this, there will be this. You'll do this, there will be this. No, it doesn't work that way. And that's why Juliana, you started off with saying it doesn't work that way. It's not because you want things to work, it doesn't work that way. It's other words. And here God decided it will work a different way. But you still have to keep religion because it lines up. Just not in ways you'll understand. In more mysterious ways. And here I have also my little theory. From that moment on, rabbis also understood then never ever again should we lead a physical war of independence based on religious criteria, saying if we fight for the Torah, we will win. No, don't, 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 don't. it's pikuach nefesh, too dangerous. Don't do that. And maybe, and here comes my maybe, together with the theory, maybe rabbis did not want to tell the whole story of the 24,000 pupils of Rabbi Akiva. Maybe, again, I'm going on, out on a limp, maybe they wanted to play on the words. It was a pulmos. I was like, pulmos, you mean a war, an epidemic? Anyways, it was bad. Why? Because maybe the story of having a big Rebbe, like Rabbi Akiva, identifying a military leader as being Moshiach, telling his Talmidim to go out in war, maybe that is something that should not be repeated until the time will be upon us, and Hashem will show it that the time is upon us. We, we shouldn't do that again. So it became like a hush-hush story. Let's fold up religion to a very small religious-spiritual uh, um, box of davening and eating kosher and doing shabbat and disconnect religion from nationalism and politics and they succeeded they did this is the last time that those two things will come together where religion and nationalism will be one and the same thing afterwards it's all the way And without opening up now uh, the B-Nest that is religion and Zionism, but it is definitely also one of the resistances that rabbis had against Zionism because in a way religion had redefined itself to be something completely spiritual. What does it mean to be Jewish? It means to be religious. What does it mean to be religious? It means spiritual only. And what about who rules us? That's that's not in our hands, right? That's Bashamayim. What, so you'll always stay under the rule of the non-Jews? No, until Mashiach will come, you understand, Until Mashiach will come, and he will bring us back to Jewish sovereignty. Until then, Judaism has nothing to do with sovereignty. That speech, girls, is a new speech. Because look here, you don't hear Rabbi Kiva speaking like that. You don't even hear any of the Chachabim speaking like that. For them, of course, you fight for Torah. Fighting for Torah means to have a Medina. Yeah. I'm saying in the way the ultra-religious, like bat Jewish state, and saying, "I ah, am Medina." Medina means a Jewish state. But once upon a time, this was like, oh, duh. of course you do. You want to be religious. You want to be religious. You have to have your state. Your kingdom, your sovereignty, that's being religious. That disappeared. It was gone. And I think that intentionally, sages made it disappear. Two things that we have. Do we have a siddur in English? Yeah, right there. Um, Can you add it to me? Thank you very much. Two passages that you have in the siddur, and that maybe you say every day, that are related to the class of today. Well, the first one I already discussed. The second one I'm going to introduce now. Yeah, just perfect time. The first passage is maybe you said it today already, especially if you had a tuna sandwich. So you so so you you, you made berkat mazal, right? The the blessing after a meal. The blessing after a meal. You realize we say, And rebuild Jerusalem, your holy city, speedily. Baruch ata Hashem. Blessed be you. Hashem. Who will rebuild Jerusalem with his mercy. And then we say, Amen. Why do we say, Amen? To mark the end of the blessing after the meal. Hmm? That's why we say here, Amen. Because this is the end of of benching. Of the blessing after the meal. (laughs) It is. I don't know, my cithering continues. It so, so why do you say Amen? Why do you say Amen? Because it's the end, but it's not the end. Yeah, yeah, here it comes. It was the end. Until the year... 100... 100... Uh, so it said it was, okay, some say it was 20 years, some say it was, it was 40 years. So let's say 20 years, until the year 155. In the year 155, meanwhile, Hadrian, and you can say that, may his name be obliterated forever, because basically he was a Hitler of that time. Oh, I didn't say everything. I know, I'm I'm like going backwards. Oh, I started saying it and then then I forgot it. Hadrian said he went after religious inspiration and he also went after national inspiration. He forbade the entrance to the city of Jerusalem. I started that. Another thing that he did, He renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina, capital of Aelia. Aelia was his family name, alias. Capital was my capital, and and he did something that we still suffer from today. Yeah. So next time you have an issue with that, say, I'm not thanking you, Hadrian, for all kinds of reasons. He renamed. He he said he took out. He absolutely crossed out the name Judea. For many references, for many documents, for many books should never be called Judea anymore, because Judea reminds it that it belongs to the Yuden, to the Jews. It's the name of Judah. So how should it be called? Philistine. Mm. Mm. No, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Because you imagine all the debates we wouldn't be having if it was the British mandate on Judea, it was like, hey, hello, Judea. And I'm like... (laughs) hello okay J- Judea yeah. look it up like if throughout the centuries it always would have per- maintained its original name Judea, so many discussions would be so many easier. Mm-hmm. right Now you say oh so you guys went to Palestine so what about the Palestinians? They were there before the Jews came <laughs> I'm like, no, It's not Palestine because that's Hadrian. Why did he well he was messed up and he was really angry. <laughs> Uh, like, and, and he really, 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 like, he did an a, enormous, enormous harm by doing so that will last for, like, thousands of years to come. So that was, he did all that. And one of the other things that he also did, to break the spirits. you know how important it is for Jews to bury their dead? That's tremendously important. Hadrian forbade, the burial of all the Jewish soldiers of Beitar, which was the last place, which were tens of thousands. The hilltops were covered with them. The city. said, no burial. Let wildlife eat them. So that was part of the persecution. Twenty years later, Hadrian will be long dead by then, but the prohibition was still standing until Antonine, and we'll talk about him in two classes from now, lifted the ban and allowed the dead to be buried. Gomorrah says that there were some tzaddikim amongst them because some of the bodies had not rotten at all, but that's just the point, so they were buried. Harugeh Betar, all those who died in Betar were buried, and then the Nazi, the religious leader of the Sanhedrin of the time, which was Rabban Gamlil II, Composed an additional fourth blessing into the Birkat HaMazon. And from that day on, we add a fourth blessing. Baruch ata Hashem, Blessed be you, Hashem, King of the Universe, Benevolent God, our Father, our, our King, our Strength, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King. And then it comes the King who is good and does good to all. Each and every day. He has done good for us, he does good for us, he will do good for us. He has bestowed, he will, etc., etc., etc. That is a text that Rabban Gabriel, every time you bench, you tell the story of Bar Kokhba without knowing. This is a blessing that was written when the the, 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 the man of Bar Kokhba, maybe Bar Kokhba himself, very, very um, logical to think because he died there, he died at Beitar. Maybe Bar Kokhba himself, although he did that a little bit earlier, so it could be he had been buried already. Uh, But anyways, so that's one addition. And here comes this next thing, which is the introduction to the topic of Laskas, and with this I finish, next class, and with this I finish. There was one Jewish group, only one, group of Jews, which was also a Jewish group, what until then had just been a kind of a uh, whatever group within Judaism, I mean the religious Jews, Etc. Etc. Who had been a little bit distant with the rabbis because the rabbis did not accept most of their beliefs, but again, most of their beliefs were not making them heretics. If it Jew went with me in the class of the thirteen principles, okay, so they believed in think that up a little bit like off, but not, I mean, no harm, no fault. But when it came to that uprising, the Bar uprising, that group of Jews decided. To stay out of it. It was the only group of Jews who did not join this national undertaking. Not only did they stay out of it, they actually even collaborated with the Romans. After everything was finished, one of the things rabbis decided very painfully, because it was something that was counterintuitive by Jews. A Jew always looks at Jew and you always have the love of Jews. But here, you realize that within Judaism, within the Jewish people, there was a Jewish group who was working against the Jews. And after very long discussions, they decided to add an additional blessing to the Shmona Esrei, to the Amidah. And I want to read you, you might know it, but listen carefully to the words and try to be a little bit historical. You have no idea how much when you... I, I, I tell you, from time to time, when I dabble, I, I don't concentrate on dabbling enough because I think about history. Uh, which is not good. I'm not proud of it. And then you have no idea how much history this is in the Siddur. Like where does it come from? Who? When does it come? So li- listen to this additional blessing, which will make it now a 19 blessing. Uh, um, Shach- uh, Abida. So it goes like this. Don't forget we, Jewish people, stand in front of Hashem and say the following words. Let there be no hope for informers, and may all the heretics and all the wicked instantly perish. May all the enemies of your people be speedily extirpated, and may you swiftly upward break, crush, and subdue the reign of wickedness speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who crushes enemies and subdues the wicked. So there's enemies that you crush, and there's wicked that you, subdu- that you have to subdue. What happened? Who are they talking about? Well, that happened after Bar Kokhba. Now, anyone want to take a guess who it was? Was it the Essenes? No. But it was the descendants of the Essenes. The Assyrian philosophy had influenced them greatly. They were Jews. put an Talit, Tefillin, Kosher, Shabbat, you name it. But basically they were separating themselves from the Jewish people. And this war will be kind of the official opening statement of, their, of the rift. Like, it could be, but no, it wasn't. And there's a reason why maybe you might not think of them. It's because the name I'm going to say now, you know them, but you don't think of them as Jews. The Christians. No, I know. I never realized. I never realized. The Christians. The early Christians, also called Hebrew Christians. The, the first Christians. They were completely Jewish. What did they believe in? They believed in that it was this person called Yeshua that came down. They, by the way, did not share beliefs in deity. That is something that will come later on in, in, in the teachings of Paul and the later apostles. Okay, let's not go old. We'll talk about that in next class, a little bit into details. But by that time, there was no such a thing. I mean, we're Jews, we believe in one God. No Trinity, no deity. And that there will be a second coming. Christ, meaning the Anointed One. Anointed One in Hebrew. Anyone? Moshiach. So I know. I know and I'm not, I don't want to make troubles to anyone. But I do know that literally translated Christians is Mashiachist. Okay. <laughs> meaning, of Mashiach those who belong very, believe very strongly in a certain Mashiach. But for very long, it didn't matter, it didn't matter, sages. Why? Because who cares? You have Jews who are completely religious, who follow everything, who are faithful in all aspects. They want to believe about a certain person who passed away a long time ago, that he was Mashiach and he will come back. You know Why? Yet I mean? mm-hmm. You might not share to believe, but, you know, look, what do I care? It seems it's like, pretty, like, that they would like just believe that people were a all the time yeah when well, you see it happens again no okay the Christians were particular with the second coming story right that was a kind of a, that was a novelty it's it was a novelty it's a new twist. Okay. we didn't have that one yet okay that's a, that's a new one and plus this Yeshua character is not recognized by sages Right. So it's a big difference with Bar who right, sure, so was... And plus, by the way, this Bar Kochva story is an excellent story about the belief in Mashiach, because Rabbi Akiva and the sages believed in him until he died. And then they called him Bar Kozba, the son of the deception. Meaning? Yeah, Bar Koziba is a city. Kosiba is the city Kochvag was the hope son of the star the one that is going to be Moshiach. and when he died they were on the yeah, like a- meaning, okay meaning okay oops I mean wrong okay meaning he, he deceived me. They, they didn't say he deceived us because they were all four doors not yeah. stones now okay like they were all in it but meaning we like we were deceived by him but not because of him. He was a source of deception for us. (laughs) It does, it does. I know, I know, I know, I know. It could be that there was some criticism that had he been really up to, maybe it would have finished out. But you know, it's a lot of what ifs. uh, In history, it's always a tricky saying what ifs. So, the Christians, the, the Jewish, the Hebrew, clearly and openly make their split with traditional Judaism. And that will lead to what will become afterwards, the Christianity, the Christianity of Paul, which will be completely outside of Judaism. We'll get that next week. Next week. Just know one thing: this was not an easy blessing to make, standing in front of Hashem and asking God to do something about another Jew. Very painful. And they hesitated, hesitated, hesitated a lot, and said, "Who can write it?" And then they asked someone to write it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I always find it so inspiring up until today, although we have now all those blessings for a long time already, with also the blessing where we ask Hashem that our enemies beat our own brothers and sisters should be, etc., we, we still call the prayer Shmona Esrei. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been Cha Esrei, like five times longer than it has been Shmona Esrei. As if, although we have 19, we still like, yeah, well, are going take that away. I mean, that's like temporary. You temporary is like 1,700 years temporary? Yeah, it's still temporary. I Meaning, we shouldn't have that kind of blessing. We shouldn't ask Hashem take away the informers and our enemies, etc., etc. We should all, like, love and peace, etc. That's it for today. Continue next week. Bezrat Hashem.